Welcome to Hot Off the Press, a podcast that provides knowledge and emotional support for new and aspiring printers. I'm Jillian of Studio Soprano. And I'm Mariah of Mariah Creates, and we are two letterpress printers who believe in sharing our knowledge and learning together. We're here to help bridge the gap between antique printing methods and modern design. So hang up your apron, put down those palette knives, and let's get into what's hot off the press. Well, hello. Welcome to our first official episode. We are really excited that you're here, and we can't wait to start diving into all things letterpress with you. But first, we think we should cover some history just so we could get a better understanding on how all of this printing stuff unfolded. Our printing presses were both brought to life over 200 years ago, but printing has a much deeper history than that. We've done the research and we have some amazing facts to share about the journey from how printing began to our modern digital printers that we all know, love, and oftentimes hate. <laughs> yes, and there have been so many advancements and variations within this field, but we've picked some of the most pivotal ones to highlight today. And while each of these techniques can certainly have an entire episode of their own, Walking through the timeline will help paint the picture of how things developed, and it'll really illustrate how significant and special the letterpress process is. So Mariah's going to start. Take it away with some of the OG printing methods. To talk about printing, we really have to start at the very beginning with woodblock printing and movable type. So we're talking the 7th and 10th centuries, so over a 1,000 years ago. Some people say maybe in the 600s, but the earliest surviving woodblock printed illustration was made in the year 868. Wow. Um, at the time, uh, it was the title page of a book, the Diamond Sutra. Um, it was discovered in 1907 by a scholar named Oral Stein. So 868, that's 1200 years ago almost, like just wild. Also, how is that piece of paper still surviving? No idea. No idea. So that was a carved illustration on a woodblock. Uh, most of the woodblock prints of the Tang Dynasty, so 600 to 900 approximately, were religious themes. But later in the Song Dynasty in China, uh, from about 960 to 1279 AD, uh, woodblock printing was extended to produce books on classics and literature, as well as illustrations. In terms of technique, the process only evolved from one color to two color printing, usually with black ink and red ink or vermilion ink on uh, side by side. Wood for these carved blocks was usually from date or pear trees, and everything had to be carved backwards because a lot of what we print is actually a reverse of what you see on the paper. Which it's just crazy to even think of them like carving all of that. And then if they're writing... Like, it's one thing to carve an image backwards, but to carve text backwards. Like, yeah. I almost wonder if they had to create, like, cheats for themselves. So from what I've read, they basically did, like, they wrote it on a really thin piece of paper, like a thin mm. skin or thin, like, piece of parchment, like, that kind of, you know, tissue, like, weight, I would assume. And then they would trace it, like, onto the block before they would carve it, which I think is what a lot of, like linoleum blocks are carved that way now you know so it's not like completely out of the realm of possibilities but still backwards yeah. nonetheless and the Chinese alphabet is super complicated and there's so many letters and like I can't even imagine yeah that's an art form in itself yep power to them yeah so around 971 AD printers in China produced a print of a, a Buddhist canon called the Tripitaka. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, so please no one hold it against me. I'm doing my <laughs> best here. Um, with the carved wood blocks, they used 130,000 wood blocks for this book to print it. That's one for each page. 130,000 wood blocks. I don't know how big they were. Like we can't assume to know that, but regardless, even if they were like an inch by an inch. That's a lot of wood to carve. Yeah. <laughs> so much. Yeah. And that's just one book. Imagine like printing one book by hand and carving all of that. Like that's insane. So moving into the 11th century. Um, so in China, the first movable type was created um, between 990 and 1051 AD. So 
over a thousand years ago, they created a movable type with baked clay. So movable type was first created uh, in China around a thousand AD. They used baked clay initially, which was super fragile. Um, and, you know, I'm sure it was prone to breakage or, you know, getting damaged when you were trying to print it or like, God forbid, you like knocked one over or something. Um, the... Wang Zhen, who was an official in the Yuan dynasty in China, is credited with the introduction of wooden movable type, which was much more durable. And that was around 1297. So we're still talking over 800 years ago here for wood type, but also wood type having been around for 800 years is wild. Yeah. Um, There are still people who make wooden type today for letterpress. Um, So that's quite a history on its own. The first ever cast metal movable type was actually made in Korea and it was around 1230. It was cast out of bronze um, and it was not widely used in time in, at that time in China because whole block carving was much less expensive. Yeah. Um, you know, bronze was probably really hard to come by and really hard to, I mean, melting it down was probably incredibly difficult, let alone creating these super detailed characters out of it. Yeah. Like we take for granted how easy it is for us to make like a lot of concentrated heat. Yeah. I'm sure that was not easy. Yeah. At the flip of a switch nowadays um, or even easier. So what's really interesting is that the Tripitaka reprint. So this book uh, that they printed with 130,000 wood blocks was uh, burned during the invasions and it was going to take monks until 1251 to complete. So it was like, I think it was like 30 years or something they planned for that. So in 1234, they asked a civil minister named Cho Yanyui. I have no idea how to pronounce that. They asked a, they asked a civil minister to print a uh, different text. And that book was going to take way too many like wood blocks. So he thought he would come up with a better alternative. He actually built on um, earlier attempts to create movable type by adapting a method for minting coins. So we took this similar technology because at that time they were just starting to create coins that had faces and places and things on them. So he took that same technology and decided to cast three-dimensional characters in metal to make type. Then he coated with coated them with ink and used them to press to sheets of paper. He made some of the first prints of type. So wild. So when he was done casting them, he could recognize the metal characters. um, So he knew that he wouldn't need to chisel blocks repeatedly. It was a lot faster. So he completed the project in 1250 AD. He saved himself a whole year. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was hoping he'd save himself like 50. I know. We're like, wow, that's amazing. He's Ah. like, I gained a whole year, which, you know, to us is like not that much, but who knows what like the actual age was at that point, the modern age or like how long you lived, like the life expectancy one year is probably a huge deal. Yeah. 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 That's true. Like I kind of can't believe how much work like goes into all of that. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, there weren't a lot of text, only like very important religious texts were ever printed and they weren't widely distributed. It's not like, you know, every how every hotel room has a Bible in the door. Yeah. Like it wasn't <laughs> like that. Like very few people had books. Things were mostly like handwritten, like the development of these plates and, or like the ability to make this type and to reuse them was like revolutionary. Totally. Which takes us into the next revolutionary thing, (laughs) which is in uh, the 1400s. So in the 15th century, printing took, it turned a huge corner. Um, So Mariah talked about like the wood blocks and the movable type, but it was still time consuming. And even though they were better options than scribing an entire book by hand, it was still expensive, like to hire an artisan to do those. And then like the amount of labor to like create those, like, of course, it's going to be expensive. Um, So in 1440, our good old pal, Johannes Gutenberg, forever changed the course of human history with his new invention, which, of course, was the printing press. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Yay, Johannes. (laughs) Um, He was an inventor, a printer, a publisher, and a goldsmith, which is probably why he, like, just had the knowledge of a lot of this, you know, stuff that he needed to, yeah, put it all together. Um, He actually adapted components from wine presses and existing paper presses. And a lot of, like, the – 
screwed mechanisms to be able to create a machine that was perfectly suited for assembly line style relief printing, which was the really important part. It's like we had the wood block, we had the movable type, people were starting to make metal type um, in Asia. And Gutenberg took that same idea of using those kinds of print methods of like inking up a raised surface, which is what relief printing is. Um, and he just realized like, we just need a way to do this faster. And so his machines like allowed for sheets of paper to be fed in fairly quickly. The inking of the plates were, um, mechanized so that people weren't doing it and it just, it made it so much easier. All right. So this allowed for much more rapid printing. And it actually meant that books could be mass produced at a fraction of the cost, which played a huge role in advancing the human race. Like no question about it. Books were able to be mass distributed. And honestly, it's the foundation of our modern knowledge-based economy. Like now pretty much everyone has access to books. I think it literally was like the beginning of the like, what was it called? The, the uh, Renaissance? Yeah, the Renaissance. Yeah. Like, the age of information. Like, yes. He was, like, creating a printing press, allowed people across the world to share information. Yes. Like, more than the, like, other than the World Wide Web, like, what else could be more impactful in sharing knowledge with the entire planet? Right. And other cultures and communities. And what's really fascinating, like, if you think about it, so one of the reasons that, like, religious texts were the ones that were, you know, hand carved and printed before is because religion was so important to people, but also like, um, churches were typically like your government. They were like the people who had money to fund things and humans to do the work. Yes. And the humans to do the work. But when you allow pretty much any topic to be printed, now you're allowing like sciences to advance and you're allowing literature to advance, like just stories and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So it was, he's a hero. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Gutenberg, we, we love you. In fact, we are going to do like, this was such a brief synopsis of that contribution he made. We're going to do a whole episode on Gutenberg. Um, but what's really important to know is that 1440, that is when all of this began. Um, and the printing press as we know it was created. Yes. And there have been so many advancements on that printing press, um, tons of variations. And we are going to dive into the different machines in later episodes. But what's important to know that they all have in common is that um, they allow mass printing and they utilize a relief print method. So like I said, meaning that the ink is applies to a raised surface, because now we're also going to talk about the opposite of when ink is actually applied to an etched surface. So etching, which is next on our timeline, is a process that was used by artists in industries in other industries, mostly bead making and goldsmiths, they would like etch beautiful decorative designs um, into things. And in the early 1500s, Daniel Hopfer of Augsburg, Germany, applied that method to printmaking. So the way that etching works is um, it uses a strong acid or a fixative to cut into unprotected parts of a metal surface that creates a design. And the process starts by taking um, a sheet of metal, which is usually copper, zinc, or steel, and applying an acid-resistant wax to it, and then scraping off the wax only where you want the artwork or the text to be revealed. And once that's complete, you submerge the metal plate, dipped in a bath of, it's called mordant, but it's an acidic, it's an acid, basically, and that'll eat away any of the metal that's exposed. And then once you clean that all up, you layer it with ink and you wipe the ink off of the main surface, leaving it only in the crevices. And then you put that metal plate with a thick sheet of paper, often dampened to help like receive the print a little bit better and press that through very high pressure rollers. So they were like two rollers that were really close together and they had like a little crank on the side and it would just move the plate from like the left to the right and apply pressure and transferring the print. 
which is pretty cool. Like a fancy little printing panini press. Yeah, you know? a little panini press. <laughs> what I was thinking about, I was like, think of that like Play-Doh roller you yeah, had when you were totally younger. The pasta maker. Yes, the yeah, pasta maker. We're printing pasta now. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so this this method existed before the 1500s. Um, like I said, in other industries, but it's known as intaglio, and it is the opposite of relief printing. So. That is just like a little fun fact. So we're moving along. The next super major event on our timeline happens in 1884. So that's a little over 200 years after Gutenberg unleashed his printing press into the world, started this revolution. Somebody was like, we need to stop making this type where you have to set each individual letter. <laughs> like, let me tell you a little anecdote. I was at the International Printing Museum here in Cal Southern California, and I was talking to a guy and he told me that when people did have to set like each letter, like let's think like newspapers or books or anything like that, when each little letter had to be set, they were paid per line in efforts to encourage them to not make mistakes. Because if they made a mistake in the line, they did not get paid for it. Interesting. Gut-wrenching. So gut wrenching. is this where the hell box comes in? Because like they didn't want to put the type back after they set all those lines. <laughs> so they left it for someone else. They're just like, they're like, like, yeah, we're done with that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So, okay. Nobody wanted to do that anymore. Or at least I certainly wouldn't have. Cannot blame them. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds like torture. And so the next biggest advancement came along, which was hot metal typesetting. Now, this is not a printing machine, but it is made to, it's used to make the type that would then be transferred onto a letterpress. So it takes all those little letters and instead of having movable individual letters, it would create a line of text, which is known as a slug. Um, and to be honest, it's freaking mind blowing that they thought of this in the 1880s. Like Mariah and I have both had the pleasure of seeing one in action. They are so cool and so terrifying and so fascinating. Yeah. And it's, it's like, it's also crazy to think like typewriters are, you know, really unique and individually, you know, appealing, but like, this is basically a typewriter for literal molten lava. Yes. <laughs> yes. This is like. It, it's so fascinating to watch it too. Like there's so many components. Like when you think about our presses, um, they have very few moving parts. And then you look at some of these machines that existed like before, before, even, our, before yeah. our presses were even made and they have so many moving parts. Let me tell you about how this thing works. Okay. So basically a hot metal typesetter is a machine that uses molten metal to create a line of type commonly known as a slug, which I told you about. I actually have a slug of Studio Soprano that I got from that visit to the International Printing Museum and it is a prized possession. <laughs> um, so pretty much there is um, this molten metal off to the side and then up inside of the machine is what's known as a magazine. So there's a magazine that's stored. When I think of this, I think of like, oh, is this, did they name it kind of how they have like a magazine of bullets? Yeah, like, isn't I that mean, what that's probably. called? Probably. Although they wouldn't have had automatic weapons at that point. That's true. So maybe, <laughs> is this where that originated from? Like having a magazine of something? We should look that up, find out how they're related. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Weird. <laughs> On a future episode of Hot <laughs> Off the Press, <laughs> we'll cover which came first. <laughs> So let me tell you what a magazine is, and then maybe you'll you'll understand why they're kind of related. So it stored pretty much all of your letter options. And of course, it had like multiples of the same letter. And it had lowercase, uppercase, and the punctuation marks. And then for each letter, it had a regular Roman, an italic, and some of them even had bold. That's so crazy. That's so many characters and different pieces that it needs. Yes. And each magazine is set for a particular type size. So like right now we talk about in like points, right? Like seven point font, 10 point font. There'd be a magazine for like your 10 point font. Um, then there'd be a magazine for like your 12. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so you're interchanging out the magazine. So anyway, this big case, all this stuff, an operator uses either, um, like, I don't really know how the paper ribbon works, but either uses a paper ribbon or the keyboard, which literally looks like a typewriter keyboard. Yeah. He types in his stuff 
the magazine drops the appropriate letter and style down a chute and it's so fascinating to watch and then they all line up into your perfect little line of text and once it's done you like send it over to this little chamber where the molten metal gets injected and then cooled and then out just bloop pops like a, little, a little line of type it's like a little type vending machine yes except it it's is. really elaborate and it's like massive really heavy so dangerous and to operate those magazines probably are super heavy themselves i can't even imagine yeah like casts for metal like yeah. not just the metal but like the casts for the metal yeah. like are you kidding me yeah it's awesome yeah so it's really, really cool and it made it obviously way easier to get books done and all this stuff because you're not putting each letter into place now. You're just creating little slugs. Um, and if like you're thinking, oh my God, what like that was such a – I can't even follow any of that. I'm actually going to make sure that we link the video that I watched because yeah. it's such an old – it's like a black and white It's hilarious. Video. You feel very in with the times. Like <laughs> – yeah. And it's so good to watch that. Um, you'll be absolutely blown away. I feel like the only downside to like a linotype is that like you can't really reuse it. Like lead type, right. you may have to set it. You may have to put it all away, but you could reuse it basically forever unless you damaged it. You I think know? you can melt it down though. Oh, so yeah. I think you that's what they would keep it. doing. Yeah, you keep melting it down, which I really like. That's actually one of my biggest complaints about photopolymer is that like the recyclability. Recyclability. Thank you very <laughs> much. The recyclability of photopolymer is nilch. Yeah. I mean, I've read a few things on like what you can do with it, but you're not going to be like melting down a photopolymer plate to make another photopolymer. Yeah. It's not going to happen. Yeah. All right, so we've gone from hand carving a wood block in, in 600 AD in 600 AD to now people are typing like on a little typewriter making lines of print that will be put onto a letterpress and mass producing books in the 1880s. That's only like 1300 years. I mean, wow. What a mass amount of change and transformation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Only takes a millennia. Yeah. <laughs> That's wild. Oh, man. Okay, so moving up into... So we've kind of like reached the late 1800s there, but going back just a little ways, uh, we're going to talk about a couple of different types of presses and printing methods that are related to letterpress, but kind of different at the same time. So in 1790, the first patent was filed by William Nicholson for a rotary press. So what's really interesting about this is where... This is where you see Gutenberg's 14... 40 press start to become what we know and love in the modern printing world. Yep. So this is where that really starts to like grow and develop beyond just like each sheet fed by hands, each piece inked by hands. And we really start to see mass production take place. So in 1814, Frederick Koenig built upon that idea of that first rotary press. His press was also steam powered, which is huge. So one of the first steam powered presses and it, that obviously reduces labor, but he also added a cylinder to guide paper over a rotating um, a cylinder in the press, which allows the press to print using a mechanically inked form. So the inking is now being done man uh, mechanically and the machine is being powered by steam, so no longer required to be done by foot or, you know, uh, other by human form. So Amazing. that press in 1814 could do about 1,100 printed sheets per hour, whereas Gutenberg's could theoretically do like 240 per hour. So we've already like increased production by five times. Um, and this was obviously a huge start of allowing for prints like newspapers um, and booklets to be available to the masses and be a little more inexpensive and therefore available to all the classes. Um, so we're starting to see that like spread of information go even further. In 1843, American inventor Richard Marsh Ho patented this uh, his press, which allowed type to be placed on a cylinder. So kind of a different style, right? Like uh, Frederick Koenig's was more like the Gutenberg, where whatever you're printing is stationary and it stays there. The paper moves, the ink moves, but the printing you know piece stays the same so richard ho's press um, actually allowed the type to go into a cylinder and that could print even faster than flatbed presses at about eight thousand pages per hour wow. so we've just almost eight times of what we just did so 
mass amounts of in like pages being 30 printed years now. in 30 years and i think they were kind of working along the same timeline because i i read that frederick koenig his press like he did create that steam powered press in 1814 but i don't think he got the patent for it until like 40 years later and they actually i think they were both showed at like a similar timing exhibition in london so mm-hmm. like they're probably along the same timelines but across an ocean which in Wild. modern days is like no big deal. You know exactly what's going on all around the world at the that very second. But in the 1800s, you didn't. They wouldn't have known that the other person was working on this thing, you know? Yeah. Wild to think about. Um, in 1870, Ho continued developing his press. And this new press he created in 1870 actually printed both sides of a page in one single pass. What? This is actually really interesting because your press was, what, 18... 18- 1887. And it prints one side. (laughs) (laughs) One side, manually fed. Yeah. So this is really cool to think about because being able to print both sides of a piece of paper at one time, like that's just incredible. That doubles your production right there. Just be like, just like it cuts the time to print in half by being able to do it in a continuous run. How cool is that? I'm actually like really blown away because um, prior to this educational lesson you're giving me right now. (laughs) I didn't realize that that much of advancement had been made before Gordy. I was under the impression that like Gordy was one of the most advanced presses at at his time time because he wasn't patented. And so I just figured because another company came and made a very similar press, uh, I think it was like 10 to 20 years later and patented that, that there was nothing more advanced at that time. This is blowing my mind because like these machines, these rotary presses, wild, wild what they could do. Well, it's crazy to think like that even in the 1870s, they were thinking about mass production. You know, like we didn't create manufacturing lines until when did Ford do it in the early 1900s? Yeah. You know, like we were pre-manufacturing at this point, but they were thinking, how big can we make this? You know, how many can we do at a time? Like Heinz Ketchup was actually one of the first. Really? Yeah. Heinz Ketchup did one of the very first like assembly styled mass produced. That's so funny. Thing. There's a reason we all still eat Heinz today. (laughs) Yeah. So this new press in 1870 does both sides of a page in a single operation. Super amazing. It also used a continuous roll of paper. So rather than cutting individual sheets and feeding them all individually, this roll of paper could be up to five miles long. Whoa. Five miles. Whoa. I don't know how big that is when you roll it up, but I bet it's big. And it could uh, put the paper through the machine at a rate of 800 feet a minute. You know what's crazy is when I think of newspapers being printed, that's exactly what I think of. That like continuous roll of paper going through and like. Yep. So this is exactly the machine that began to print and fold newspapers and cut them all in one process. So cool. So that machine to create newspapers, uh, it folded the pages and then it also could cut them too, I think. And it produced 18,000 papers an hour. It was used the first time by the New York Tribune. Isn't that wild? So 1870, we have what we now know as folded newspapers. Like 1870, that's crazy, 150 Nuts. years ago. Like wild. So we've talked about the history of a rotary press, but to explain a little more what that press actually looks like compared to what we like, what we know and love. So a rotary press has paper going through a supporting cylinder and a cylinder containing the printing plates. So in flatbed presses or platen presses like we have, the print plate is on a stationary, like it's in a stationary place. So the paper comes and meets it. It doesn't go anywhere. It stays where it is. Yeah. So this is interesting because the cylinder has the printing plate. Another cylinder has the ink. And then the paper goes through like a set of cylinders. It doesn't actually like stay in one place. It, it travels and meets the print, uh, the printing plate as it goes. So it usually has the, the cylinders going in different directions. Um, and like we talked about, you know, the different presses and in the different rotary presses over the years, some of them had type in the cylinders, some of them had the printing plate, some of them didn't in the original, in the original form. So they kind of evolved. But what we know now, um, they are always used for like high speed, um, operations and usually they're using uh, they're using the cylinders the big rolls of paper so they're not usually doing pre-cut paper yeah. um, but a lot of these large presses can print four colors now so cmyk they can print cyan magenta yellow and black they can cut and fold and even bind in one continuous process 
paper can pass through them at like 20 miles per hour. <laughs> you can you can barely <laughs> bike that fast. And this paper is just going. Yeah. Um, so modern day large rotary presses can print up to about 60,000 pages in an hour. However, I would like to say that 60,000 pages in an hour versus 18,000 pages in an hour uh, 150 years ago, what are we doing, guys? We could do way better than that. <laughs> okay. But again, like just thinking about the timing of all of this, like Gordy is foot pedaled. He doesn't have a motor. Uh, like I average like four seconds of print because of just how he has to open and close. Like he's not going to open and close faster than four yeah. seconds per print. So um, well below that. Yeah. Well below that. Well, that's all true. But like also – the paper is being hand fed. So there's like this human element that when you mechanize that thing, all of a sudden you don't have to worry about fingers being smashed, which is why four seconds is realistic for us. Like, you know, it's like, you can't really go so much faster one because of the machine, but two, because you're at risk, you know, it's like how how much are your fingers worth to you? You know, like, (laughs) do you want to try and get to (laughs) three seconds per sheet? No, no, not at the risk of my fingers. I don't thank you very much. Um, but yeah, really interesting. And I just think it's mind blowing that like a lot of the modern presses that we like that they use in commercial printing, like this is different than what Jillian and I have at home, but it's very common. All of the mass documents that you see in the world that come in the mail in the form of junk mail and like all of that stuff is printed on a press that was basically invented in the mid 1800s. Yep. It's wild. Insane. So cool. Um, so to cover kind of the expansion on rotary presses. So what we use, what big professional printers will use most often is offset printing. Um, It's a rotary press at the heart, um, but what it does is it actually takes a uh, ink from a plate and it gets the image onto a rubber roller and then it uses that rubber roller to press it onto the surface, whether it's paper, fabric, um, you know, packaging, all of that stuff. Um, so offset printing is beneficial because you can get a really rich um, and like high quality print from it. It's really dense and the color will be clear. And um, it's also really large quantity printing because by the time you get all of those four colors lined up and everything perfectly set up, you don't really want to do like 10 of them. So it's like, you know, this is something that you're printing like 80,000 copies of um, and you want them to be like super crisp, clear images, then that's what you're going to use. The uh, rollers feed the paper into the press and then the cylinder containing the ink just stamps or prints it onto the paper. So it's like somewhere in between, right? Like it's not letterpress because we're doing minute volumes of things and we're doing very like craftsmanship, but you're still working in these like four different color schemes, right? Or each yeah. color is its own pass. What's really, what's actually interesting is that um, like still up until this point, there is like this cost of entry to doing a job. Like there's always going to be like a setup fee and then like the larger your volume can go. Totally. Um, obviously the less expensive per piece it'll be, but like what changes between letterpress and offset, offset printing is that at some point in time, you bottom out, like with letterpress, you still, you can't go any less expensive than this because you still have an operator standing there and doing something. But with offset printing, it's like once you've got your cylinders going or you've got all the plates on your cylinders and all of that stuff is set up, like you could just let that, you could let that baby run all day long. Yep. And the thing that rotary presses, which essentially offset printing presses are rotary presses, right? What they have in common with letterpress is that they all require a plate. Yes. They require that one item and every plate for every color. Yes. So the offset and rotary presses are four colors. CMYK add up to get all the colors of the rainbow that you need. Um, But letterpress, you have one plate for every color you want to do. And our colors are unlimited. It's not limited to those four. You know, we custom mix things. But every print job for rotary, offset, and letterpress requires its own plate for every part of that image yeah so that's kind of where they all come together right like they all were super labor intensive to begin we've made modern advancements to make them a little more efficient automated things them yeah and but they all require this like initial setup um offset is the mass quantity version whereas letterpress is the small quantity version but similar ideas yeah and the colors so like just to visualize in case you've never seen like an offset printer like 
the CMYK colors are all individually applied, but they're like, they each have a section within the machine. And so the paper is going through and it's getting the cyan and then the yellow and the magenta and the black. Whereas if you're on a letterpress, like even if you're on a windmill, something that's like very automated, like Mm -hmm. there's not a person hand feeding anything in, you still can only put cyan on at one time or magenta on at one time. And then you have to clean the press change the plate, reset everything up and register it, and then put the new color on. Right. Yeah. Whereas these offset presses, all of it happens in one continuous motion and they are huge. They take up massive. They have so many rollers. So many rollers. You would never even guess. We should actually play a game. We should be like, comment on how many rollers (laughs) you think the average offset printer has. Yeah. How many rollers do you think each color in an offset printer has, or how many rollers do you think in one entire offset printer? Let's say one that does the four or four colors. Yeah. And we'll just like, you know, start at the bare minimum and yeah. let's see what you think. Yeah. <laughs> I bet no one gets it because I wouldn't guess it. I wouldn't guess it either. I'd be yeah. like, uh, three? Nope. <laughs> Negative. Yeah. You'd think like four colors, four rollers. Like I would even say maybe like Okay, so we know that the plates are on a roller and we know that the ink's on a roller. And then I would imagine that there's a roller to like pass the paper through. Has to be like clean of white, right? Yeah. So you have three rollers automatically per color. Yeah. Plus. But then there are so many more. Yeah. So many more. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's crazy. Tell us about the benefits. Or did we talk about that? Oh, yeah. So the benefits of uh, offset printing, obviously talked a little about like the high quality, like true color um, printing it's a really like dense ink and it's very because of all the rollers that are in the offset machines it's very like evenly inked um, it's pretty inexpensive when you're doing large quantities I mean that's true with any printing like the more you print the less expensive each item is going to get but as far as like large quantity printing it's going to be the most effective like high quality color print for the least cost. But for like pricing, I feel like offset can get down to the pennies, but letterpress never can. Exactly. Like you just cannot. Because first off, like offset can also be printed on a lot of paper stocks. Yeah. And letterpress cannot. And most um, offset presses can do like they use the big, huge rolls of paper, which when you buy paper in bulk is less expensive. Yep. They can run through the whole thing in one process. It's all automated. So there's a lot of like there's barely, you know, not barely any labor, but there's less labor involved. And And what's really crazy to me is that they can do a lot bigger paper so they can print 10 copies at a time and just chop them down. Yeah. And just chop them down. So they can do like 80,000 copies. Wow. 80,000 copies. Like that's just a mind blowing number. Like if I tried 80,000 copies on letterpress, it would take me like the rest of my life, I think. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe not. And that's that's why we all get Bed Bath & Beyond coupons in our mailbox all the time. So totally. And offset printing is cool because it can obviously paper, but it can also, because it's like such a dense ink and it's so rich in color, you can print on a lot of surfaces. So like cardboard and wood and leather can all be offset printed. Um, So like when you have special finishes that you want to do and, you know, really specific things, it can be really effective for that. Um, And I feel like that's unique to offset printing because our digital printers, our letterpress printers, that's all different. Yeah. And speaking of digital printers, I mean, that's really that's really the next thing. So like everything we've talked about thus far required a plate, whether it was relief or etched, like something or is type or type or a wood block that you carve by hand. Yes. Something is there to transfer your image that you ink and then you press it onto paper in some fashion, right? Mm-hmm. Like that concept was really like reinvented over and over and over. It's like, how can we take these same things and just like find a more efficient way to do them? Totally. Um, And then in the 1950s, people were like, you know what? Let's get rid of all that. (laughs) We're done with this. Let's Let's talk about the very, very modern printers, like the ones that you have sitting in your home or your office. The first of those, of those kinds of printers to be invented were of the inkjet technology. Inkjet recreates a digital image by propelling droplets of ink onto paper. Now I've known what an inkjet printer is for a while, but like when I was looking at Wikipedia, I was like, give me a basic definition of inkjet. And it was like (laughs) propelling droplets of ink. I was like, it's so so dramatic. dramatic. (laughs) Which is like, 
<laughs> it's not surprising to me because there is nothing more finicky than an inkjet printer. Yeah, nothing more splatter splattering than an inkjet printer. Nothing more ridiculously annoying than an inkjet printer. Nothing that decides it doesn't want to feed. Today, I was using my inkjet printer right before I was coming here. Yeah. I was trying to print out three cards. I was like, give me three cards, dude. <laughs> he got halfway and then he was like, I need to think about this for a while. And then he spit out my paper and I was like, you know what? You suck. Gordy would never do this to Gordy me. Gordy would never do this to me. Gordy oh. would never do this. All right. So let's talk about it. Uh, technology was for the technology for inkjet printing was first extensively developed in the early 1950s by several folks simultaneously. So really similar to like what you were talking about as far as like they were in two different parts of the world. Like it, it just so hot. Like everyone's kind of, you know, jiving. They're all thinking the same thing. Yeah. And when we're, when are we talking about like 1950? 1950. So, Still no internet. Yeah. There's no internet. No so, internet. Yeah. We yeah. all have to remind ourselves there was no internet. There was no like even sending letters took weeks. Like, yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. So we had, um, let's look at, okay. We had, now I may not say his name, name right, but Ikirio Endo, who was working at Canon in Japan. And we all know Canon, the brand, same, same manufacturer who made the printer that I wanted to kick across the room this I morning. I had one of those too. Yeah. Suggested the idea for a bubble jet printer <laughs> around the same time that John Vaught uh, HP was developing a similar idea. So they were both developing inkjet printers, essentially. In the late 1970s, the inkjet printers that could reproduce digital images were generated, oh, were developed by Epson, HP, Canon. So there was a bunch of manufacturers. And of course, when everything first started, like they were expensive, but then they became so affordable that like you can have them in your homes. And this was really the first time that like an individual didn't have to go to a business to like, have something printed like they were small well yeah. at the time they weren't small yeah. now they are and obviously the the technology within that realm developed more and more and more and more and now you could get really really crisp like high quality photos from a printer that's sitting in your living room you don't have to go anywhere else like yeah. it'll do it so then shortly after that in uh 1969 laser printing came about and laser you also in your home may have a laser printer these are the two interchangeable like you go to staples you're gonna buy one or the other i'm looking for a printer what kind do you want inkjet or laser and a lot of people are like i don't know what's the difference let me tell you <laughs> so okay when you're thinking like cartridges of ink like the tiny cartridge liquid ink you know used to be really messy because you would get a little bottle that you refill it and it would squirt everywhere. Although I wish I, they still did that. I hate the process of buying ink. It's so like wasteful. You can buy printers. Well, okay. So keep going. Cause okay. So, okay. If you're thinking those like liquidy ink, that is an inkjet printer that is spraying little dots of CMYK to create your image, your photo, your text, whatever it is. Laser printing is an electrostatic digital printing process and it produces high quality text and graphics i freaking love the way laser printing looks yeah so crisp so crisp so crisp so clean so crisp and clean um and it creates it by repeatedly passing a laser beam pew pew back and forth over a negatively charged cylinder called a drum to define a differently charged image a differentially charged image is what I wanted to say. <laughs> a differentially charged image. The drum then selectively collects electrically charged powder ink, which is called toner, and transfers the image to the paper. So what I love is like my brain can clearly understand what an inkjet printer does. Yeah, I'm like, I this is a foreign language. I have no idea what a laser printer does. <laughs> yeah. And the ironic thing is my laser printer never pisses me off. Yeah. No, I have no idea how it works. And you know what? It works every time. Well, so it's really funny. I don't know if you've ever done like the like the heat embossing where like you like use the yes. like, like marker ink or whatever to like it's like transparent and then you put the powder on it and then use a heat gun. Yep. That's what I picture in my head when I'm picturing a laser printer. Yeah. Like which a, I think is like mostly accurate. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't have notes on here about what like the pros and cons between the two are, but I do know we from personal you. experience. Yeah, so you. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> um, the thing with the laser printer is the toner can technically chip off. It is a powder that is just sitting on the surface of your paper and it can flake off if you have a very smooth stock. 
it happens, especially if you're using um, white toner. So like white ink printing, unless it's foiled. So this is just like ink printing, mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure only exists in laser yeah. toner format. Mm -hmm. And it looks great, but sometimes depending on your cardstock, it can flake a little bit. So like that's kind of frustrating. Also the heat of a laser printer will curl your paper as it goes through because it does pass over a drum, whereas inkjet printers can feed straight through. So a lot of inkjet printers, um, they do sometimes feed from the top and go down, but you can buy those ones that feed flat from the back, which allows you to have a very thick cardstock in them. Yeah. Um, and again, I'm talking home-based because, of course, yeah. commercial printers have, have so many more capabilities. They've yeah. got all the tools in their toolbox. I'm talking about, like, you want something in your home office. You just started your stationery company. You want to know what the best printer is. What should you get? Yeah. Ask yourself, what kind of cardstock do you like to print on? Because that is immediately going to rule some shit out for you. Are you going to be doing pictures or just typography? Yeah. Do you do a lot of watercolor? Yeah. Or is it like really simple? Like yeah. what kind of ranges do you want? Do you want like a crisp, clean line or do you want like a good color saturation? Like yeah. those things all are different between inkjet and Huge laser. Difference. And do you want to do that like hot foiling process? Or it's not hot foiling, but... Oh, actually it is kind of, yeah. it's digital hot foil, right? Yeah. Is that what you would call it? Digital foil. Yeah. Digital foil where you put, you toner. print out in full black laser toner and then you apply the foil and you put it through like a little hot machine that yeah. like irons it together yeah. and then you peel it off. If you wanted to do that, you would need the laser. Yeah. You can't do that with an inkjet because there's no toner involved, which acts as the glue for the gold foil when you put it through that little extra machine. Right. Yeah. But a lot of coated papers will melt in a laser yeah. printer because it's hot. And vellum. Vellum. Yeah. Also, I have printed a lot of vellum on my laser printer. But it though. curls, doesn't it? It curls terribly, yeah. but it, depending on what you want to use it for, yeah. you if can get it like gate folds. It's fine. But So yeah. really it's like, you have to understand what you want to like what you want to be doing, a lot of people will end up with one of each because it's just easier. Yeah. But if you're like a lot of I, stationers, let's be clear. Let's sure. Anyone who's just like at home happens to be <laughs> listening to this is interested about generic information about printers, then you know, you're probably gonna go with an inkjet. You know, the laser printers are more expensive, the toner is mm. kind of a pain. But the toner lasts so much longer. Yeah. But okay, so I can replace the ink cartridges in my Canon for $32. All of them? All of them for wow. $32. What? You see, I don't have I don't have the Pixma Pro. Okay. I just have a nice little Pixma. A I'm tiny just, Pixma. You're so smart. Um, <laughs> who knows what the quality this is, is like in the Canon. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. We love you, Canon. Um, but my my laser jet to replace those toner cartridges is four hundred something dollars. Yeah. And, and that's obviously the high volume ones, but you need it because if you don't buy the high volume ones, you're replacing them like crazy. And then you're just like putting more trash in landfills because so they don't recycle that. There are some ink tone. I don't know. I don't know that much about laser printers because I don't actually have one myself, but I know that you can get some toner cartridges refilled, but I would imagine that's more like the commercial level. Yeah. Like when you're talking about like Xerox machines, which are laser printers, by the way. Yep. Um, like those are usually refillable. So yeah. there is that advantage, but. You have to like take them somewhere and get them refilled and then like, you know, if it's like an off-brand, like what does that look like? And I don't know. All right. And since we talked about off-brand, let's just roll right into it really quick because that is one of the cons of like these, these types of printers is that the way that they have struck, like it is a whole business model in and of itself. Yeah. What printing manufacturers have done, which is they make the cost of the threshold of buying the printer so low. Yeah. And then they charge you astronomically for the refills of ink or toner. Totally. And then they make it um, detrimental to your machine if you buy an off-brand. Totally. So the Canon Pixel Pro literally can tell if it's not a Canon Yeah, they put a microchip. Yeah. So it's like you can literally like void your warranty if you put in non-Canon ink cartridges. Yes. Which is a huge deal when you're a stationer and you rely on your printer for something to go wrong if you did not have it covered by warranty is like, that could be detrimental, you know, depending on where you're at with things. Like, Yeah, it's really stressful. Yeah, and when you're paying a lot of money for a printer to not be able to have that like protection and like to just be like shelling out cash for every ink refill, it's like, it's especially painful. Yes. Um, so anyway, everything that happened before 1950s, we love. Yeah. Those machines are amazing. We're here for it. Can you tell why we work with presses that are 200 years old? Like, 
I've yeah. got a lot of complaints about modern printers. However, they have brought printing into the home. Um, and that's, that's really lovely. Yeah, they've made it affordable for everyone. And I mean, printers are pretty inexpensive now. Like, you could go to the store and get a printer for what, $50, $100 at most, like if you wanted to. Yeah. No problem. You could also get like a little printer that plugs into your phone and you could take a photo and like print. Like what we have done, like with technology, is insane. Even just like those and those ones that print from your phone don't use any ink. It is like some sort of, yeah. It's like, yeah, Yeah. thermal. Um, I also think it's really interesting to like, just because we've talked like so much about these, you know, 12th, like 13th century, 15th century, even 19th century, we've made so much progress, yet it's still impossible to get an inkjet printer to properly color match with your computer. (laughs) (laughs) Like, so light years of new technology and still kill me yeah um well the printable palette fixes that yeah that's true laney what's up girl Desi- designed by laney if you okay let me just say this right now if you are listening if you are a stationer you need to get the printable palette it yeah. basically makes everything so much easier because even if you don't print from home let's say you print from a couple different like commercial printers yeah you order the printable palettes like have them print them. it yeah and then you just know what their colors are going to look like so because i think we all naively believe that if i set the cmyk balance it should be exactly right. it should be exactly yeah. right and it's what a not silly concept. yeah what a silly wah, concept wah, wah. yeah so i mean printing has a long history but it's also pretty incredible it's a huge part of humanity and knowledge and education and it was part of propaganda in wars. It was part of religion for so many years. Um, and it's part of our daily lives, you know, like no matter what printing method you're using, if you're a letterpress printer or if you're just at home printing a couple photos of your grandkids, like it's all relevant. And we would not be here today without um, all those all those steps along the way. And all hail Gutenberg. <laughs> Yeah, Gutenberg, what's up? Gutenberg, we love you. Yeah. Thank you so much. We can't um, we can't speak to his personality or his, you know, beliefs or anything, but we That's do true. I really know his, nothing about him. We do value his contribution <laughs> to printing. Let's just leave it at that. We will dive into who Gutenberg yeah, was we'll in a later, at a later date whether we like him or not. But yeah. we appreciate him nonetheless. <laughs> Very awesome. much so. Okay. Now that we have covered the vast history timeline, um, let's go into our segment. Pew, 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 pew. Pew, pew. Hot off the press. And I will start. So hot off the press with Studio Soprano this week is a very interesting job that I did, um, which was actually one of the first times I have ever done this. And it was an embossing project. So I'm excited that I'm talking about this on the day where we covered history because feel like there was a lot of things that went into this yeah um so we didn't really dive into how our presses work which we will get into in a later episode but for a really brief overview they are clamshell platen presses so if you can imagine like taking your two hands together and like pulling your fingers apart like to, a like, clam clap, like a clamshell <laughs> like making a little clam that is how our presses like meet like one side has the plate with ink on it and the other side has your paper they meet they print it's fantastic mm-hmm. um what i decided to do because a client asked me very recently is to emboss on my platen and um it was a very interesting process because i knew how it worked but i had never gone through the process of setting up the artwork mm-hmm. and there were a lot of things that i needed to learn Um, so basically to make an embossed effect, which if you are unsure of what that is, it is when the printed area is raised above everything else on the paper. So basically the embossing pushes a design through the paper and creates a raised image or text or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's really cool. A lot of people like to use them on letterhead. You know, like if you look at any kind of crest or anything and it's raised up, that is typically an embossed feature. Mm -hmm. So it's really awesome. And a client, you know, wanted these bands for boxes and they wanted the the name, their company's name Mm -hmm. embossed in it. So it occurs by having two plates that fit together. 
So there's a male plate that is the reverse image of what you want. And then there's a female plate that has all of the negative space around it. And the yeah. male, when you put them together, they literally fit like a tongue and groove, yeah. like fit right together. So the first hurdle I had was figuring out how I make those plates. Now there are some manufacturers for photopolymer plates where you could just say, hey, I wanna emboss this. I'm using this size paper. Here's my artwork. And they'll create the male female for you. Mm -hmm. um, but I really don't like not knowing something about my business. Like I always want to know how something's done. I'm fine with outsourcing as yeah. long as I know how it's being done. Yeah. So I contacted my plate manufacturer and I asked them for like some guidelines and they basically gave me the breakdown of how you figure it out, which is you take the paper stock that you want to use because it could be any pound thickness, weight yeah. thickness that you want. You take the actual thickness of it. So this doesn't mean like the 91 pound, like 91 pound has no relevance here. Yeah. You need to know like measurable thickness. Because 91 pound from one mil could be completely different from 91 pound from a different Completely mil in different. Thickness, in thickness. In it'll thickness. It'll weigh the same, which is why it's pounds. Yes. But it'll be completely different. Yes. Yeah. So you need to know the thickness. And then that thickness you want to translate into like the area, the gap that's between your male and female plate. And you can... To get like your image to print out to the size that you really want it, this is more important for text than anything. But like if there's a specific like thickness you want your text to be, you really want to like subtract some from both the male and female mm -hmm. instead of just being like, oh, I'm going to subtract all of that negative space from one. Totally. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was really fun. I made a whole bunch of samples. I took like different amounts out of each and it ended up being that like going with the exact measurement of what the paper was was too tight of a tolerance yeah and I needed about like 0.02 points more in illustrator to like get that perfect balance yeah so that part was the first hurdle and it was really fascinating the second hurdle was that these bands were 19 inches long <laughs> And my platen is maybe 13 inches wide total. The printing area is less, yeah, but the whole... To fit the piece of paper. Yeah, the whole platen itself is Without probably only 13 like inches the flywheel and the gears and all the oily exactly. spots and everything. Yeah. So how the heck am I going to keep this sheet of paper on? I built like what was to me the most ingenious <laughs> little uh, extension onto my plot and even put like a little bumper so that it would register perfectly every time. And it just, it reminded me all the reasons that I got into this and love this, like where there's a will, there's a way. Totally. The answers never know. Yeah. You can figure it out. I mean, even if I had to do something different, like if that didn't work, I would have figured it out. Yeah. They turned out beautifully. Yeah. They were awesome. I, I saw it's them. like one of the things that I am most proud of because I hadn't actually done it before yeah. and now I have and it's perfect. Well, I also feel like that's a great, like that just attests to why we wanted to make this podcast mm -hmm. because you had to struggle and strive to try and figure out how to emboss on your press. And I remember reading some of the comments on the posts you posted on Facebook groups and I always do this, but I just like roll my eyes and I keep scrolling. Like I'm not going to like confront people and be like, that's not an answer or that's not helpful. And I was just reading like these threads that Jillian posted because obviously we read everything that the other does. And I was like, man, nobody is willing to just like give her a how to or like answer that question directly. Like no one had like a solid, here's what you do. Here's step one, two, three. Like it was just like so funny to read all those comments and be like, oh, you shouldn't do that on a platinum press. And it's like, well, I'm going to. So yeah. either you help me or you go away. Several, <laughs> several answers were just, you really need to get access to a different press. And it's like, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. Like, again, you can't just do that. You like, can't just do that. There's not just extra presses. You can just like walk into someone's studio and just like be like, hey, I need to emboss something today. And they'll be like, okay, sure. Let me show you how. Like, that's not how it works. That does not help anyone. Yeah. Meanwhile, your plate maker was super helpful and very super helpful. Although I will say the first email they sent me felt like I was reading Klingon. <laughs> it was so confusing. And now, and that's no part to them. That's just like, there's a lot of terminology that I am slowly learning yeah. because I was never formally, formally educated 
in this field. Well, even if you were, a lot of those terms are necessarily letterpress friendly. Like you don't usually talk about like points of thickness or caliper thickness. Right. You know, They're also, so what was really confusing is that the caliper of the paper, which is the dimension, the thickness of the paper is called a point. That is not the same point as a stroker font point as size. As a stroker yeah. font point size. <laughs> Just fun fact. Just a there. fun fact. In case you ever need to know, they're not the same. And if you're wondering, are they even maybe close? No. Not even close. The answer is no, they're not. One is one thousandth of an inch and one is one seventy second of an inch. It's a very big difference. Yes. Yeah. Well, what an adventure. I'm so proud of you. It was an adventure. Like, and you figured you know, it out. I mailed them out yesterday and it just like a sense of pride. Yeah. An absolute sense of pride. It was new. It was exciting. It was like I was completely terrified at one point that I said yes to something that my machine wouldn't be able to do. And then turns out like not only can it do it, but it does it really well. Yep. And then um, before I even actually printed the job, I had already signed four other people up. Like I've, I've started just adding embossing to everything because it is dope. It, it is looks so cool. great. Yeah, it's such a cool effect, especially in addition to letterpress because letterpress is kind of the opposite. It's almost a deboss if you yep. do it deep and it's, I think it's super cool. In fact, next week I'll be printing a holiday card where half of a word is embossed and then half of it is letterpressed with a deep bite. So you will have Love that it. debossed Can't effect. Can't wait to see those. Yum. Yeah. It's Yum. also just like, being able to accomplish something like that, that you set your mind on and just like, you know, it's inspirational. I'm inspired by you. Thank you. Yeah. I so hope we inspire someone else too. Let's hear about you're hot off the press. Yeah. So hot off the press over here at Mariah Creates. Um, I recently, and I've done this before, but it was a really like fun job and it ended up being really perfect, which doesn't always happen. Um, I had a letterpress job to do um, invitations for a wedding suite for another designer. And I uh, love printing other designers work because everyone has different styles and it's really fun to see other people's things. And, um, you know, I think what's special about doing things in a small, uh, you know, quantities and with an artisan or somebody who does stuff handcrafted, um, or custom is fun because like I was able to talk to this printer about what exact color they wanted, what they were trying to match. And we, you know, based on their client's price point, it just made sense to do digital for part of the invitation suite and letterpress for the main portion, which a lot of people do that. A lot yeah. of people mix digital and letterpress because letterpress does get expensive. That's totally fair. And um, she ended up wanting to do the exact same color, which as we've talked about with digital printers, this uh, podcast episode can be a real pain and trying to get a color match just from one printer to another is really hard. Even if your computer file is exactly the same, even if your settings are the same, it can still be really difficult. And, you know, there's a couple of ways to approach it. And I debated long and hard on how I was going to do it, like whether I was going to do the digital first or the letterpress first, because the letterpress ink is custom mixed. Mm -hmm. It's not just straight out of a tube. You don't just like throw it on there. And, you know, once it's on the press, you really don't know what it's going to look like until you start printing it. So I ended up doing the digital first because I'm a fan of the manual processes of letterpress and being able to just have the digital done and then color match letterpress to it made so much more sense to me because I could add more white. I could add more purple. I could add more black. I could add the colors that I needed and adjust the letterpress ink to match it perfectly, which I did by the way. Yay. Thank you so much. Yes. Um, so yeah, it was really fun. And I always love mixing digital and letterpress in creative ways where it's like, it doesn't have to be an exact match because that's a lot less pressure to get it perfect. Right? Like you can, you know, have a little room for error there and it works out a lot easier the first time around usually. And that's always fun, but it was a really great challenge to just like make it match perfectly. And also like, if you don't know already, letterpress ink is usually transparent. There's opaque white that you can use, which makes it more solid, but it's almost always going to still be a little transparent. So when you're mixing the ink itself and then you print it in a small amount on a piece of polymer plate or lead type onto white paper, it looks very different Super from different. your ink knife to the piece of paper. And sometimes it even looks a little different when it dries, depending on what you're using. Yeah. Um, so it was really fun to, I don't know, this is just, I guess, a success, which is not always the case, um, but it was just a really great example of how you can marry modern printing methods with the antique printing methods of letterpress. And, you know, you don't always have to go 
balls to the walls, full letterpress suite, like you can mix and match things. And some things are better suited to letterpress and some things are better suited to digital printing, like watercolor and artwork and stuff like that. Yeah. This was just like a gorgeous floral crest and beautiful typography and a thin border around the page and then hand torn edges. So it looked incredible. It was a beautiful like project once it was complete and it worked out well for the very, you know, like for the rare occasion. So it was awesome. Yay. A satisfying, satisfying hot off the press. Well, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad we both had really good a win. Uh, projects this week. Yeah. yeah. Next time we'll talk about something that goes terribly wrong, I'm sure. <laughs> Just got to keep it balanced, you know, but that's part of the learning experience. Yeah. There's so. always the highs and lows with letterpress printing. Yeah. I will say that debate of whether to do the digital or the letterpress first is, so the first time I did it, I did the letterpress first and I immediately was like, this is the wrong way. Yeah. This is absolutely the wrong way. So then the next time I did it, I did the digital first and I was like, no, this is the wrong way. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like, so we probably do a lot of things different every time we do them. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like the next time I do that, I'll probably do the opposite. You know, it depends on the color that you're doing, I think. Yeah, it does. What you're printing on and what you're printing in general. Like I... But I find that I personally don't do well with like trying to adjust on the digital printer. Right. I'm a very like tangible visual person. So you have all this like digital printing out in the ethernet that you just have to like hope translates correctly. And I just like cannot handle that. And I get super frustrated and like cranky, let's be real. But like with letterpress, it's all very tangible. It's all right in front of you and you can just add more white or add more black you know, and make it lighter or darker. Yep. Like it's, it's a physical thing that you can adjust by hand if you need to. And it's not, yeah. It, what's so interesting to me with like adjusting a color from the digital printers is like when it prints out, I can be like, oh, this clearly needs more cyan, like clear as day. So then I bump it up like a couple percent and then it comes out and it is turquoise. So not the right color. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just like, why do you have to be so difficult? Again, this is why it comes back down to, even if you made your own, like what I always like to do when I'm testing colors is I take a bunch of blocks and then I slightly change each one. Yeah. Change each one. Yeah. And then like, see what comes out. You print them all on one page. So you yep. can see what works and what doesn't and what your printer is actually doing with those numbers. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you're much more patient than I am, I think with your printer, but. Well, um... uh, if you witnessed the temper tantrum I had this morning <laughs> with mine, you'd not say that. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Well, this was really fun. I hope, I mean, I certainly feel like I've learned a lot. I definitely learned some things today. Thank you so much for teaching me. Yeah, you too. I had no idea that there were patented machines in the 1800s. I just figured nobody was patenting things then. I know. I, we should, yeah. I maybe have told people that patents didn't exist then. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But like the first patent that I noted was in 1790. So that's like a hundred years before your press Gordy was even in in existence, which not patented, but whatever. Um, like I wonder, we'll have to look up one. I'm going to learn so much more after this because I have so many more questions than I started with. I like so many questions. That's all, that's the whole fun in this is that like we did research and we looked these things up because we wanted to be factual and we don't want to just like talk. We want to have some ideas to share. Right. But I have so many more questions. (laughs) Yep. So, you know, I know what I'll be reading tonight. And if you have questions. Yeah. Let us know. We'd love to answer them for you. You can email them to hotoffthepresspod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on social media at hotoffthepresspod on Instagram and send us a DM. We'll send us save a DM. it for a podcast or if it's urgent, we might even help you out in DMs. You never know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'd love to hear if you have questions about the history of printing or about any of those types of presses or anything else we covered today. This is so exciting. Awesome. Yay. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you.